Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today we have B.J. Campbell on. B.J. is a very interesting writer. He writes uh, currently on Medium on the publication Hand-Waving Freaker Outery. How about that for a title? He'll soon be moving to Substack, so uh, check him out. Uh, well uh, Well worth a read. He also writes on opensourcedefense.org, which is pretty interesting. It's a, uh, a gun-related online publication, but one that eschews the culture wars, doesn't play politics other than the politics of gun rights. I took a quick look at it. Uh, it looks quite interesting, particularly people who, frankly, like myself, are strong proponents of gun rights, but don't otherwise align myself with uh, Team Red politically. And it's actually... Uh, Good that there is such a uh, such a venue out there. And taking a look at it, the quality of the writing looks pretty good. So anyway, welcome, BJ. Thank you. Yeah, good to have you on. Been reading some of your stuff, and uh, I both laugh and think, which is a, which is a good thing. I appreciate that. Uh, today we're mostly going to focus on an essay you wrote. It's a little, you know, uh, written back in 2018. So the language is maybe a little different than you might have written it today. It's called "Social Justice is a Crowdsourced Religion." Uh, let's start off by uh, defining what you mean when you say social justice. Yeah, having these kind of discussions is um, it's very tough unless you bang the semantics out first, which is uh, what you'll find at any time you you know interact with social justice folks. If you're trying to come to a resolution or an agreement, you have to really spend some time defining terms um, because the terms that they use internally are different or they're using the same words and have different meanings. And so you, the potential for talking past people is is very high. Um, you know, one of the things that I've tried to do as I've dove into this is, you know, just to not adopt a position pro or against any of this stuff. And what you're seeing now, and we can maybe round back to this topic later on in the podcast, is you're seeing kind of a political realignment that instead of it being left, right, it's sort of woke, anti-woke. And, um, and a lot of the, the disagreements inside this space are even more difficult to resolve because of the language barrier. So there is a cast of people, you know, in the country who have adopted a set of ideologies and a set of kind of procedures of how they adopt their ideologies. And um, they don't have a name for themselves at all. Right. If you ask them, what's, you know, what's the name of your ideology? And they'll say something like, well, it's being a decent human being. Right. Because that's how they perceive it. But, the, um, you know, for a while it was PC, it was politically correct. And then there was, you know, social justice. And then there's kind of a pejorative that came in where they were branded social justice warriors. And so they kind of pivoted over to woke. And now they're not even calling themselves woke either. And part of the reason why they're not is because the woke terminology was kind of hijacked and stolen from, you know, the black community, quite honestly. And so they're kind of pivoting away from talking about woke now as a deference to the black community that the term was stolen from. Um, But uh, so anytime this thing is branded, it gets branded from the outside. And right now, again, in early 2021 slash most of 2020, people who are writing about it from the outside have been calling it woke or wokeness or things like that. And so for the purposes of our discussion, we'll call it social justice or we'll call it woke. And, you know, when somebody tunes this podcast in in 2025, there might be a different name for this thing, but the thing is going to be around. And I think it's going to be around forever. And one of the reasons why is because of how, of the architecture of how it's built. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's an important thing. Okay. Uh, when you talk about it as a religion, you know, religion could be all, you know, almost anything from, you know, non-theistic uh, religion like Buddhism to people who worship rocks and trees to, uh, you know, the Abrahamic religion with the old dude in the cloud with the beard. Uh, when you talk about religion, uh, what's your framing? Well, it's, um, you know, what I have been thinking about for a long time is kind of identifying religion-like properties that it carries. And then having a deeper thought about what the purpose of religion is, what 
function religion serves inside of society, right? Um, you know, we, if you go back through history, there's no good examples of a great society that did not have a religion. And I think that it's reasonable to make the case that the reason why is that religion serves an important part for great societies and that it conveys behavioral indoctrinations and it creates a sense of unity, right? Um, so, you know, when we have a, you know, if, if it's not a religion, it's a pseudo religion or it's something else that's providing all the same machinery that's necessary from a religion and it's filled the void that has been left when, you know, Western society started abandoning religion and they needed something else to fill the same function. Does that make sense? Yeah, indeed. So you have like, you know, religion is a, it's a meaning making structure. Um, it conveys moral principles. Um, and all, they always have scripture and the scripture conveys the ideologies. Um, it has a, you know, it focuses on moral purity. It focuses on in-group behavior. It demonizes out-group behavior. Um, religions have a, a function to excommunicate blasphemers. Um, religions give a sense of control over uncontrollable circumstances, you know, um, you know, the primary function of religion, like we said, is to promulgate behavioral indoctrination scripts, things that you just do without having to think about them. Right. Yeah. And you make, and you make the point that uh, thinking is hard, frankly, and most people ain't very good at it. So, uh, you know, probably by through evolution, we have found, uh, at least for humans, that having behavioral scripts for most humans uh, seems to be relatively efficacious. Right. And you also talk about the efficaciousness of religions and not all religions are equally efficacious. So maybe talk about that concept a little bit. Well, I mean, I think, you know, uh, if you want to kind of throw a Darwinist lens over the top, over the idea of, of uh, cultures, which I think very heavily in these terms, it's how I like to think about history. Um, you know, we probably had two, three thousand some odd religions 2000 years ago, right across the globe. And over time, we've had kind of a religious Darwinism thing going on where all the different religions died out for one reason or another. And, you know, you might have like, I don't know, the cult of Yahweh and the cult of Baal back in the time of Canaan. And, you know, the, let's pretend, I don't know this, but let's just make up that the cult of Baal liked to drink pig's blood every Tuesday and the cult of Yahweh liked to bathe every day because that's what baptism is. And so the cult of Yahweh beats out the cult of Baal, right? So you have this, you know, system where, different religions in different areas of the world, all the ones that succeeded beat out the ones that failed because the behavioral indoctrinations between the religions were beneficial to society, right? Now, whether one of them is right, one of them might be right or not. The reason why they look similar is because they've been kind of roasted through the fires of Darwinism to find out which ones work the best, right? And, you know, so like, I don't know, like this, there's a lot of interesting history behind like the Templars and Rosicrucians and whatnot. They all went off to the Middle East and they discovered the Middle East had a whole bunch of different religions that all kind of had the same stuff. And so they made up the story of, uh, that the Masons sort of follow that all of the religions were, had the same seed, but it could just very well be that they just evolved to the same solutions. And so these things, um, you know, the golden rule shows up in every religion that's left. Right. Um, and the reason why is because the golden rule works a lot better than the kill your neighbor and steal his beer rule. Right. And, and if we had that rule, then, you know, there wouldn't be enough cops to be able to, to manage the society. So these kind of indoctrinated behavioral patterns are important to convey in a society in some function or another. And if you're abandoning religion, then that leaves a gap where something else has got to jump into the gap and it's got to fill the role of conveying these behavioral indoctrinations. I mean, do you open the door for a lady, Jim? Oh, definitely. Well, depends. Uh, I size her up and figure how feminist she is. <laughs> you know, if it's a woman of my mother's generation, you know, born in the, you know, the, the late twenties, definitely. Right. So you're doing more thinking about it than I am. Right. I just do it. And, and so we have all these, the, but you know, that's cause that's a script. I've just adopted that script and I go by it. Right. And, um, and, in prior generations, we got these behavioral scripts out of, you know, Sunday school. And now we kind of get them all over the place. We get them from TV, we get them from the internet, um, get them from Disney movies. And uh, so, but lacking a central 
you know, control over that and lacking any kind of um, gatekeeper about what is or isn't appropriate behavior, um, the, the social media organism has created its own gatekeeper. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the driving factor behind the emergence of the social justice movement or the, the woke movement or whatnot. It is a set of behavioral indoctrination scripts that you're supposed to follow in order to be a decent human being. And, um, but the weird thing about it is that it's organic and it's been kind of invented on the fly and that could be good. And it has some interesting, useful properties, especially if you look at it through a futurist lens, but it also ends up, uh, adopting some of the trappings and failures and, uh, parameters we don't necessarily like about some of the old world religions as well. Right. And that's where a lot of the friction comes from when you're kind of looking at this thing. Um, I mean, there's a, you know, it establishes a hierarchy of value. Um, but the hierarchy of value flows from, you know, Kimberly crunch intersectionality theory, which is a little bit weird. We can bring that up a little bit later, but, um, it has, you know, virtue signaling via symbols and phrases, you know, like, and this is not unique. A lot of people like like to rake the wokes over the coals for virtue signaling so much when they're, you know, change your Facebook avatar to whatever the most popular thing is of the day. I mean, virtue signaling is something that's everybody. I live out in the country, you know, I see somebody driving an F two fifty down the road with a, you know, real men love Jesus bumper sticker. That's a virtue signal too. It's just a virtue signal to a different culture, right? You know? And um. You know, uh, the other things that really kind of tie it into being a religion is um, religions convey ideas in a way that becomes unfalsifiable. So that way it makes it harder to challenge the idea. So um, where, uh, you know, somebody who's a, um, a very traditionalist Christian might say, well, the earth is 5,000 years old. And I know this because God put the dinosaur bones there. That makes the the 5,000 year old indoctrination unfalsifiable. The way uh, the social justice folks do this or the woke folks is through standpoint epistemology, which is the thing where they talk about, well, my lived experience says this and my standpoint is just as valuable as your standpoint, which is a way to undermine anybody disproving at a statistical level, the, the indoctrination that they have to be talking about. Right. Um, and that all kind of flows from a postmodernist backbone. Like if there's no, such thing as objective reality, then my subjective reality is just as valid as your subjective reality, right? So that's why a lot of this stuff is tied in its kernel, its original form with the, you know, the Frankfurt School and with a lot of those kind of like philosoph you know, contemporary philosophical underpinnings and whatnot. They kind of provided the backbone for this thing to emerge. Yeah, we uh, I had uh, uh, James Lindsay on uh, not too long ago, and we talked about his book uh, Cynical Theories, where he does a great job in going back to the roots of this and showing that uh, the falsifiability actually comes from the incorporation of uh, some of these postmodern concepts. Uh, you know, I liked your analogy. You know, the the dinosaur bones one actually uh, uh, rings home for me because. Uh, our household was radically atheistic and uh, our daughter adopted it even more than me. And uh, 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 she was chatting with one of her friends. Actually, she spent the night and uh, they were talking religion. The, the, the friend was real religious. And uh, my daughter said, well, how do you explain the dinosaur bones? And uh, the friend had the canned answer, the script that was even better than the one you gave as the example, which was that God put the dinosaur bones there to test our faith. Yep. It's a good one. It's a good Perfect. One. Right. 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 Uh, you know, it's unfalsifiable script, right? Which is uh, something that, you know, Marxist Leninism had a whole bunch of those. The Nazis had a bunch of those. Uh, you know, any ideology that uh, is going to, you know, triumph even for a while uh, needs to have defenses against reality. But if it's a non reality based uh, ideology, which most of them are. Well, I mean, you know, you, you see those crop up with like other ideologies too, like nationalism will have this sorts of non-defensifiable, uh, 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 you know, scripts and whatnot. When you talk about James Lindsay, I mean, I'd been thinking about this stuff for a while and I was, I was half done with all of my, my architecture for this article that you were mentioning. And when I stumbled into James Lindsay's work on the same topic, you know, he's, he had a huge, I don't know, um, after I wrote that, he wrote another, well, I guess the guy. 60 minute long read he put up on Aero or however you pronounce that about the same topic about uh, 
you know, social justice being a religion. But the, the thing that frustrates me about James, and I have the book too, I have the, the cynical theories book, I haven't read it yet. It's just sitting on a shelf. I'll pull it out and read it one day. The thing that frustrates me about James is that he's a really good analyst and he's really good at unpacking all this stuff. Um, and then he's, you know, he co-authored a book about having productive disagreements. But then, you know, if you were to jump on Twitter and follow it, all he does is just have unproductive disagreements, you know. Yeah, I talked. I, we talked to him about that, and he admitted the fact that uh, uh, he's basically just being, uh, you know, a, a confrontational, uh, you know, dramatist on Twitter, and that uh, he, you know, th- which is kind of unfortunate because uh, you know he, his work is really quite exquisite, uh, but it does not surface itself well on his uh, on his tweet stream. I, I must confess, he's a very poor ambassador of this concept, right? And like, I I think that you know when. When you look at people who you admire, you want to look at them for what to do and what not to do. And his approach, I think, is just to this whole deal of, of kind of – it feels to me like what he's doing is he's trying to jump into the culture war as a culture warrior instead of as a culture war analyst. And that's a, certainly a better way to gain traffic and better way to, to get your name out there and that kind of thing because the culture war is what gets clicks in the media nowadays. Yeah, unfortunately. But um, I just – I just don't feel it's productive. I try to I try to stay as cultural agnostic and conscientious objector to it as, as I can. So yeah, that's it's good. But on the other hand, if we're going to have a culture war, it's got to be two sides. So that's I think that's the other argument of it. Uh, I also want to hit on another uh, phrase that you mentioned, which is uh, one of my pet peeves: uh, the people that play this card, lived experience, right? As if that trumps, uh, you know. Uh, you know, say a scientific analysis. Uh, and this goes all the way back to my favorite, one of my favorite teachers in seventh grade, uh, Mr. Williams. Uh, he made the very interesting point. Uh, how do we know the world is round, right? He, was, he, uh, he didn't use the language, but he was essentially, uh, uh, you know, pointing to uh, intersubjective uh, reality that science creates, right? How do we know the world's round, right? And he made it very clear. And if we thought about it, None of us in our lives up to that point had ever seen any actual evidence that the world was round. And, uh, you know, since that time, I've kept my eye out for proofs. And maybe five or six times in my life have I seen tolerably good proof that the world is round. Probably most people never have, or if they have, they didn't notice. Uh, So their lived experience is that the world is flat. And yet, uh, you know, we laugh at the flat earthers. And so this uh, laying out the card lived experience is, uh, you know, to my mind, not very different than laying out a card that says uh, I'm a flat earther because that's what my lived experience has been. Yeah, I mean, lived experience is a way to um, bypass statistical arguments. Right. I mean, a a lived experience is one anecdote, one data point. And then uh, statistical analysis is to gather as many of those as you can in a sample and then do math on it. Right. And that's how science works. Or to do an experiment, right? You can either gather data, which is one way to do science, and the other way is to set up a controlled experiment, do the experiment, and see what happens, right? And uh, and I thought that was a very nice parallel between so, that you pointed out that just like many religions, not all religions, but many, particularly the more uh, hot religions like uh, uh, you know the Abrahamic religions. Uh, tend to have been, at least in their heyday, very anti-science. Uh, and they had, you know, their ways of uh, deflecting, you know, as in, hmm, God put the the uh, dinosaur bones there to test our faith, right? And then more sophisticated ways. Uh, but uh, social justice uh, pretty much has to do the same. So maybe talk a little bit about uh, the conflict between uh, social justice as an ideology and science. Well, um. So we kind of pretty much already covered that topic, honestly. It's like anytime you see something that um, is going to, if if science shows up as something that is a uh, problematic, there's a good word to the ideology. Then what the ideology does is, you know, explain that away by saying, "Oh, well, this is problematic," and that goes back to kind of those a lexicon. And I'll admit to stealing the the you know lexiconic parallels from James because um, he's one of the first person people I know to really point out kind of a more exhaustive list. But like, so anything that is heretical is problematic. Anything that's blasphemy is politically incorrect. Any like original sin is privilege, right? Um, You know, their church is the safe space. Um, You know, the meek shall inherit the earth is the future is intersectional. That's almost an exact mapping. 
and, you know, born again is woke. You know, these things, the, and they're, it's not a coincidence that these things have been mapped over like that because, um, it's, you know, you look at the history of Christianity, Christianity was spread throughout Europe by piggybacking itself of European paganism, right? And the easiest way to spread a meme is to attach it to a familiar meme. So it's, and, and the, what, as social justice stuff has evolved, it's evolved from the crowd and whatever is the most viral or gains the most traction is an idea that gets elevated to the forefront because it gets spread the most. So in, you know, in, so it's like, this is a viral religion. And so what it spreads the most inside the United States is stuff that is familiar to people who are of a familiarity with, you know, American Protestantism. So a, a lot of these concepts just get remapped in the same way that this, you know, that God's got remapped into saints in, in Europe. And that's how it's been able to propagate very well. And, you know, looking at the futurist aspect of it, it's probably one of the reasons why it has very little traction in places like, you know, uh, the Pacific Rim or areas that don't have this uh, Protestant background because the concepts aren't easy to map over, right? You know, this thing's never going to take uh, get hold in China. Um, so it, it has some limits to it, and it's only able to really spread in areas that are ripe for it because the analogies are already baked into the dialogue, so that it becomes easy to make the jump. Does that make sense? That's very interesting. I hadn't thought about that before, but you're right. Uh there seems to be no sign at all. In fact, have, having talked from people from East Asia, they do indeed find it hilariously laughable. Um, uh, now, actually, I wonder if there's an interesting experiment here. Your uh, your conjecture would would suggest that uh, Catholic countries are probably less susceptible uh, to uh, wokeism uh, than our Protestant countries. So, it, you know, it might be interesting to come up with a neutral survey of wokeism. And give it in uh, countries that are uh, same culture but different religions. For instance, Germany, where there's Protestant regions and uh, Catholic regions, and the same is true in Switzerland, uh, where there are uh, Protestant regions and Catholic regions, and see if the, there is a difference in the score on wokeness. Of course, you could even do it in the United States. People who are Protestant and Catholic uh, by their pronounced religion, though, truthfully. Even Catholics in the United States have imbibed a lot of Protestantism with their Americanism over the years, so it might not be so good. But there's a, I would point out, there's a, a, a testable proposition to your conjecture. Well, I mean, you know, the big thing to do would be tested on the South America, right? Because that's still very deeply Catholic. Um, but the you, you bring up a, a bigger point that I think is something that folks in this space need to have their mindset around is that there's very little study on how prevalent these ideas are. And so, you know, as we've, you know, shifting from a left-right political dynamic into a woke, anti-woke political dynamic, you know, uh, somebody like James, who spends all, James Lindsay, spends all day on Twitter, you know, trolling the wokes and then get trolled back. You know, his world, you know, all of our worlds now are made up of what we see on our glowing screens instead of what we see out our windows. And so there's no good way to know how prevalent the woke thing is. It might just be loud in our phones and quiet out the window. And... I don't know that anybody's ever done an actual, just even in just within the United States, an American survey of the prevalence of woke ideologies, right? That's, that's something that hasn't really been studied because truthfully, the kind of people who would study it are the people in doing humanity studies and they're already woke. So like there's nobody who was really available in academia to look at the thing from the outside. You know, I, I don't know how prevalent this stuff is. And it seems prevalent for anybody who lives on Twitter, but, you know, not a lot of people use Twitter by ratio. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, in my own sense, and again, I've thought about this quite a lot, is that uh, actual postmodernists, actually people who uh, understand and practice postmodern theory, uh, is probably 1% to 3% of the population. Uh, and that those who have uh, absorbed uh, wokeness in a reasonably full form uh, are probably not more than 10 to 15% of the population, but, you know, which is a pretty big number, uh, but not nearly as number as large as their seeming dominance in uh, popular culture would indicate. Uh, you know, I know a lot of folks, and I can only think of one who's actually a hardcore woke, which is kind of interesting. Well, you're older than I am, so you probably know less of them. I know a lot more. Um, but, and, you know, I, and I, I hang out with them. They're my friends, that kind of thing. But what I've found is that, because it was very difficult to try and interact with these kind of folks, 
for a long time until I kind of had this, you know, oh, it's a religion epiphany because I can hang out with Christians and Muslims and Jews and, you know, uh, you know any kind of religion. And I know what to uh, say and not say around them because to make sure I don't offend them. That one of the problems with um, interacting with woke people, it's, it becomes easier once you realize or it's at least a pseudo religion. Um is that the main feature of wokeness and the feature that is the most interesting and the most new and the most relevant to futurist thought is that the indoctrinations are not fixed. They're malleable and they catch them all on the feed. And this is an extremely important thing to understand. And I don't think even like folks like James really understand the implications of this, you know, people who are, have adopted the anti-woke position and are fighting them, they're, um, they're trying to, you know, set up and knock down ideologies, right? They're like, oh, this ideology is dumb and that ideology is dumb and whatever. And they're not realizing that the overall program is not the, – the true feature of it is not its body of ideologies because ideologies can change. You get updates, right? And there's a lot of good examples of these. I mean, like, you used to be able to identify as black and then you couldn't. And then they canceled Rachel Dolezal, right? You remember that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, you, you, you shouldn't. You, you could identify a black if you weren't black, I suppose. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what well, you used to inside woke, you know, dogma. You could do it and then you couldn't do it. They changed the rule. And then everybody forgets that that used to be that the rule was be that you could or that you follow the gender thing. Like how many genders are there today? You know, in 2012, there were two and then 2014, there were three and then 2017, there were 37. And Tinder added 37 different gender options for trans inclusivity. And then that wasn't enough. So then we went to infinite. And then now, if you go back to, you know, kind of the boundary case on this, which is Tinder, you know, the, the, the trans women on Tinder are just, they're not adopting a different pronoun. They're just saying they're women. And then you have this trans women or women thing, which is what they're doing now. But the blue checks on Twitter still haven't updated to that because they're still doing the him, her gender pronoun thing. There's very few people within the social justice thing that are still adopting, you know, alternate pronouns. Um, so that thing is probably going to get, you know, depreciated at some point. Um, so, and it went through a whole big chain and this is something that's very, how many genders there are is a very fundamental thing, right? But it got adjusted over and over and over again over the past five years. That's a very short time frame to adjust something that's that fundamental, you know? Um, a good example of you know, this just past year was we had this whole thing going on in social media. We're leaving the house as murder during COVID. And then that pivoted straight in the span of a week to not leaving the house as racist. And there was no, the, and people on the outside looking in were like, you know, don't you see the cognitive dissonance there? Don't you see how that's like, and, but the folks who were catching their updates on the feed, it was no, um, there was no cognitive dissonance at all because there was just a sense of, oh, well, this is what we're doing now, right? Because we got our update. And so our behavioral indoctrination changed. Um, you know, another good one was um, there was a big push in oh, two or three years ago inside the woke spaces that um, the definition of transphobia was not wanting to have sex with a trans person, right? Um, and that became a big thing for about a year and then pushback from within the gay community caused that to get depreciated. So the ideologies that are on this thing, they're really malleable. You don't know where they're going to end up. And that makes it a big, that makes it a little bit frustrating to deal with this kind of people, the, the folks who are woke, because you don't know what, if you're not plugged into the feed, you haven't got your update. You don't know what you can and can't say around them at any given time. That makes it especially difficult for um, once cancel culture gets put into it, because you might say something today that becomes unwoke five years from now, and then you get canceled. So you see a lot of people who are um, having opinions or topics of the day that are getting retroactively burned, you know, nowadays. And I mean, like a great one was um, like during this, the confirmation hearings for Amy Comey Barrett, she said, I think she said the phrase sexual preference instead of sexual orientation. And the reason she said that was she hadn't got her woke update. Right. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. um, and so then, you know, there was this giant freak out about it and it's like, well, if she'd had our woke update, then she would have said the other word, but then they went back and changed the dictionary after the freak out to, you know, to keep up. Cause like, you know, Webster's wasn't even up to date on their woke. 
right? <laughs> you know, so so it's it, this thing. It, it's constantly changing. You could end up in a scenario in ten years, let's say that like uh, the wokes all go vegan, as an example. Let's just say, for example, they they we could be tearing down statues of Martin Luther King for eating a hamburger, right? <laughs> um, so so you don't know where this thing is going, and that's one of the things that's. Uh, that makes it frustrating to deal with. But from a futurist standpoint, the fact that it has updates at all is gives it a really robust nature to makes it a lot more um, uh, anti-fragile than a lot of traditional religions, which have a book that's thousands of years old. And it takes like a council and I see it to change the book. You know, it's, it, it can't change fast enough to keep up with times. Right. So, if for future religions or any new religion to emerge in the 21st century and beyond in the internet age, I think that they're going to have to come up with some kind of way to compete with this update mechanic. You see what I'm saying? Oh yeah. Yeah. I would describe it in a language that I borrowed from John Robb, who I have on the show fairly recently. In fact, just had him on uh, the other day uh, is uh, the way you're describing it. uh, We could think of wokeism as a self-organizing network tribe and the self-organized, a network-based self-organizing network tribe. And that kind of covers what you're talking about because it exists as a standing wave on the network. And those standing waves are subject to change at any time, right? You you say this term is no longer within our tribe. We now use this. We can sort of switch that very quickly because we're all highly interconnected to those of us who are on the inner uh, you know, the inner circle of uh, the or inner enough circle of the network. And then that gets out to people who are just a little further out. And, uh, you know, within a, a couple of days or a week or two, uh, if you make a change, everybody hears about it because it's a self-organizing network tribe. And we're, of course, where that becomes, the, I'll steal the term, problematic is, yeah, if they want to use their own language, that's fine, right? Uh, who cares, right? A self-organizing tribe wants to have its own language. Uh, you know, well within their rights. It's when they start to insist that other people use that language when it becomes, uh, you know, annoying, problematic, and, uh, you know, potentially, uh, you know, a source of serious conflict. You know, if Amy Coney Barrett uh, did not consider herself woke, which as far as I can tell, she doesn't, uh, there shouldn't be, uh, or at least one could argue that there should not be any obligation on her to use their vocabulary. They Just like you would not require a uh, Buddhist to use Catholic terminology. You wouldn't expect a Buddhist uh, to be required to talk about original sin or the Trinity or virgin birth or any of that stuff. So, you know, that's where it kind of gets annoying, where uh, the wokes uh, don't want to just use their terminology amongst themselves. They want to force everybody to use it and, you know, kind of makes it like Islam during the, uh, you know, the hot period, uh, you know, 750 AD, where, uh, the Islamists went out to uh, conquer everybody else and uh, and converted a bunch of them at sword point to uh, say, hey, you got to think about the world this way. Right. I mean, the, it's this is kind of another part where I break from James Lindsay's approach here, because it seems to me that if uh, woke folks were to go ahead and just adopt the um, the understanding that they are in a a pseudo religion or a religion like thing, or maybe they could come up with another word for religion and then use that, then it would make things a lot easier because, or it would make things a lot less confrontational because then they would be able to say, okay, I follow this ideology. You follow that one. And part of tolerance is understanding that we can exist together without different ideologies. Right. And so when I have this kind of conversation with woke folks, I'm usually like, you should just go ahead and do this. You should say, all right, this is a religion and we're going to adopt these views by, and we're going to lean on freedom or religion to have, you know, to defend any of our views that, might not jive with the latest scientific study or something like that. And that I think would be a positive thing where folks like James do is they say, you're a religion and now I'm going to troll you with the fact that you're a religion because you don't think you are. Right. And, and that's, um, I think that's non-productive. Whereas like, you know, grabbing their hand and looking them in the eye and say, religions are okay. You can have one might be more helpful to the overall you know, to, to diffusing some of the culture war rhetoric that's going around with this thing, personally. That's that's kind of where I view it. Well, it's an interesting argument, but, you know, if we look at the history of religion, there's often been totalizing religions. You know, think of Catholicism, uh, you know, in the Middle Ages when, uh, 
Anything that even looked a little bit heretical came along, burned them at the stake, tore their villages down, killed them all. Or again, uh, Islam, uh, you know, uh, 740 to maybe 800 AD, you know, just sweeping out across the world and, uh, you know, forcing everybody to convert. Uh, uh, You know, on the other hand, there are other religions which aren't like that at all. Buddhism, for instance, uh, Hinduism, somewhere in between. Uh, and so there certainly are, are totalizing religions. And so one might say that, uh, you know, if uh, you put uh, wokeism in a basket of religion, uh, you also have to make the second move, which is to say that in the modern world, since the Enlightenment, uh, and basically since the lessons that were learned in the Thirty Years' War, uh, totalizing religions are no longer acceptable. And uh, the way woke is being practiced today is as a totalizing religion uh, where it believes that everybody must convert. Yeah, I think you're, I mean, I, from a, a from an enlightenment standpoint, I think you're absolutely correct. I think if you, you know, dial the thing back to an even larger viewpoint, um, you know, the the history of the human race is a history of, cultural evolution or we might say culture war right there's always been this kind of uh, friction between different cultures and what has emerged so far is not going to be what it looks like in 100 years or 500 years or something like that because we can't say i mean it would be uh it would be very arrogant for us to say all right our our culture is done right you know and so i get the idea that cultural evolution is important and what in in the past and so cultures have won these culture wars by you know infiltration like the Christians did in, to the pagans. Um, they've, uh, you know, won at sore point. Um, they've won by outbreeding each other, right? Um, and this is something, for instance, this is stuff that you'll see sometimes spill out of the alt-right, uh, you know, circles where it's like, well, holy shit, if you looked at the birth rights, the Muslims are going to win just by breeding, right? You know, um, the, uh, you have, uh, and that's, that's a culture war boundary, just like all of these other things are. And when I attack the thing, I think about it. I think the Frankfurt School people were half right. I think that we do have, um, you know, these ideologies that are just made up, that just fill the white space in our brains, and that um, these behavioral indoctrinations are things that we learn and we are passed and are passed down, or learned through school or such, and they make up a large portion of our behavior. Um, and then these culture wars are wars between the ideologies themselves. The, it's the ideologies using the people as the tools. That's where the, the Frankfurt School people failed. They saw the ideologies as just ways that powerful people were using to put to keep other people out of power. So they just did a power analysis, which is wrong. I mean, what's right is that the ideology itself is the powerful thing, and it's using the humans as ants to propagate itself. Right. That's what I, what I call a meme space entity, which has its own evolutionary context. Right. It's not necessarily being directed for nefarious purposes, though it may be. There are times when ideologies are certainly are being directed by their authors or their inner circle. Think of Nazism, for instance, or Marxist Leninism, both of which were pernicious ideology slash religions that had a relatively small, coherent core of people making them. Uh, though it's, uh, I think, more true of something like a, uh, you know, bootstrapping, self-evolving uh, uh, network, uh, self-organizing tribe of the sort that you're painting the picture of here for woke. So I think it's more more true of that particular variety than it might be of other kinds. Right. I mean, so, you know, Nazism or communism or any of these things, some of these ideologies tend to be very strong and they can grow and they can propagate by war. They can propagate by books. Right. Um, but all of the ones prior to now really have been either um, a very old tradition that had kind of evolved extremely slowly over time because technology was also evolving extremely slowly along with it, or were things that were cooked up by like an inner cabal, like you say. And the unique thing about the woke thing, the thing that the futurists have got to pay attention to, and I don't think they are, is that this thing is a new thing. It is come. It is it merged differently, and these the anti wokes that are trying to fight it, they don't understand what it is, because if they were going to try and develop something that would fight it, it would have to also be an emergent crowdsourced thing. That what you see what I'm saying? And while well, that may be happening, uh, you know, maybe there is an anti woke uh, religion uh, that you know maybe some of this uh, crazy stuff that we 
you know, saw on the 6th of January is, uh, you know, the catalytic event that will produce an equally uh, pernicious anti-woke religion. Could happen. You know, the standing wave uh, starts to explain things to people, which they then modify so it has higher binding energy and higher mimetic replication. Eh, It could easily happen. Well, I think that if you go back and like, if you go back and read Eric Hoffer's True Believer, I'm sure you've probably read that. One of my favorite books, one of my favorite books. And it's it's a must read for anyone that wants to understand this stuff. Read it again. I'm telling you this. I read it, you know, this is my third reading. I read it when I was a kid. I read it again, you know, in the early 2000s. I read it again this summer during the uh, Floyd protests. And it is so tremendously descriptive of what's going on right now. And one of the things that is really important about it is it talks about how um, societies will be fertile for the creation of mass movements and that the nature of the mass movement is not as important as the fertility of the society to form one. If it didn't form one, it would form another, right? And what we have right now is we've really got two. The woke is one and the MAGA is the other one. Right. Mm -hmm. And the MAGA one is the MAGA one is set up about like the old ones were set up around a cult of personality and a set of prior indoctrinations. And then the woke one is set up with kind of a, um, a preternatural worship of the feed. You're right. Um, and so you ended, but if you look at the descriptions of the people that are most likely to be radicals within that book, it's like, it's perfectly descriptive of the people around the streets. It's exactly the same. One of the things that really stood out to me about in, from that book. And I remember writing it down was, um, it is not the, um, the abject poor who are revolutionaries. Cause they're like too busy trying to figure out how they're going to put food on the table tomorrow. Right. It is the comfortable bored poor that become revolutionaries. Because they've got everything they need, except for, you know, uh, something to give meaning to their life. Yeah, the other one I remember well from Hoffer is, uh, which ties in very closely to Peter Turchin's idea of the fact that the country is overeducated, the world, the West is overeducated, too many people with advanced degrees, not enough jobs for them. As uh, Hoffer talks a lot about the true believer often being the talented but frustrated uh, the uh, person with, say, an, uh, an advanced degree who's working at Starbucks. They feel that they haven't gotten their desserts in the world. And there's lots and lots of people in that situation today. And that's fertile ground for, uh, uh, you know, any sort of uh, kind of ideological-like, uh, religious-like uh, uh, mass movement. And I guess the other guy I point out is that unlike Hoffer's day, uh, you know, in those days, the technology platform, radio, and newspapers uh, would, would tend to converge to probably no more than two mass movements at any given time. You know, communists versus Nazis or, uh, you know, uh, libertarians versus collectivists, or however you want to divide it up. Uh, the, the interesting thing about uh, self-organizing network tribes on very, very low cost, marginal cost to communicate uh, global networks is you can have a bunch of them. Yeah, we haven't seen it yet, but I don't. Uh, we could be more like the Spanish Civil War, where there were eight factions fighting, and I think that's worth uh, thinking about too as we think about the future. This is, you know, the dynamic is there, uh, the fuel is there, and these overeducated folks uh, who are frustrated in their lives. And so, you know, come back in ten years, we may have five or six of these uh, uh, bootstrap religious ideologies fighting it out. So um, one person that's really looked heavily at that, that you might want to look into, um, and I've appeared on his podcast material several times, is Peter Lindbergh. He's up in Canada. Oh, I know Peter real well. I've been on his Stoa thing. And of course, his uh, Internet Tribes is uh, 2.0. Internet Tribes 2.0 is the, as far as I know, still, the, it's a little out of date, but still the best paper on uh, you know, you know how the internet is causing us to segregate into tribes. Not all those tribes have turned into ideologies by any means, but uh, no, right, they're not mass movements. They're all movements. They're all micro movements, right? So, I mean, the the way uh, you know content is delivered to us now, we're with uh, you know AI driven content personalization. You know, if I were to go and Google flat Earth, then it might feed me ten articles about flat Earth and. As I, all of our, you know, exposure to the world, you know, stops going, looking out our windows and starts moving towards the glowing screens, it can be very easily for me to 
disco find myself a flat earther simply because my phone is telling me that, right? So what you end up with is a situation where anytime anybody gets completely interested in one, you know, topic, ideology or whatnot, it'll kite you down the rabbit hole. And deep down at the bottom of that rabbit hole is a set of ideologies that's trying to compete with all these other ideologies. So it's not like we don't have, you know, it's not like we don't have a bunch of these. It's, we do have a bunch of them. We almost have so many that it's, it's, you know, it's hard to keep track of. And the thing that alarms me the most is um, uh, like, okay, here's, here's an example. Let's say we go on our Wayback machine. I think we go back in time. And we go down to, and you and I, we, we take a trip and we go down to, you know, the Aztec civilization. And we see these people and they're like sacrificing virgins to make the sun come up. And not just like one or two, like thousands or tens of thousands. But they were the most successful civilization in North America when the Europeans showed up by a wide, wide margin. Like the Navajos and Cherokees didn't have nothing on the Aztecs. Aztecs had, uh, I mean, they had uh, uh, colonies as north as the southern United States as far south as Colombia and pyramids and great riches and all this kind of thing. And it was built around human sacrifice, obviously horrible. And we would consider that to be insane. If we tried to stop them, they would look at us like we were insane, right? And the reason why is because we don't have the same shared reality. We don't have, you and I don't share the reality that, you know, sacrificing virgins is a smart thing to do. But now we, so we grab one of them, we bring them back, we plop them down in, you know, LA or Atlanta or something like that. And he might be freaking out, running around, trying to sacrifice a virgin, make sun come up and he'd get thrown in a sand asylum. So this, this thought experiment is, you know, it's, it's an extreme one, but what it shows is that what matter, the definition of sanity has to do with shared realities. And if everybody's being kited down all these different rabbit holes, we have then, and we have no shared reality than everybody outside the rabbit holes and saying to us. Yeah, unfortunately, and that's our, that's our world and our social platforms are causing that. In fact, tomorrow I will have Tristan Harris back on uh, the podcast and we'll be talking about the movie Social Dilemma, which he was heavily involved in. And, you know, that's his big concern is that these algorithms, which, by the way, are not designed to cause fragmentation. Uh, what they're designed to do is encourage engagement to sell advertising, right? And But their side effect because we have found out uh, that false statements or inflammatory statements engage people five times as much as prosaic statements of reality. And so an unintentional side effect of a business designed around an advertising-driven uh, business model that is then optimized using machine learning on behavioral response to content uh, tends to divide us up into these tribes. Right. And so then where do you go from here? Right. Everything's completely broken up on the, um, you know, on the social justice topic, you see that this is, you know, it just happens to be one of the very biggest ones. And, um, when Peter did his mimetic tribes, um, you know, article, and one of the things that they did, I don't know if you got deep down into this, but, um, they did, they put together kind of a matrix of all the different, uh, internet tribes and which ones they were, uh, allied with and opposed to. And then somebody else did a uh, graphic diagram of this, like with little bubbles and arrows and stuff. And the one that had the most antagonist arrows out in the end was the social justice bubble. Um, it, it was it was the most uh, uh, antagonistic to all the other ones, and it's also you know the biggest. And one of the reasons why has gotten bigger since you wrote the article too. One of the reasons why it was probably because conflict generates traffic. Exactly. That's the uh, that's the uh, Tristan Harris view and also the scientific view of people who look at this stuff is that, uh, you know, and, and if you think about it, now, this is actually a good conversation. You know, the if the wokes are more like a, a evangelical religion uh, than than otherwise, uh, they're going to have sharp elbows with everybody else, set off conflicts. Conflicts make noise. Noise brings eyeballs. Some percentage of those eyeballs get converted to the new religion. So uh, having sharp uh, elbows, just like uh, you know, the Protestants had very sharp elbows. You know, led to the sixty, uh, the hundred, year, uh, the thirty years' war. Sorry, thirty years' war, uh, and uh, that just generated more uh, more Protestantism. Quite interesting. Well, we're getting late here on time. Usually, these essay-based uh, uh, podcasts I try to keep try to keep under an hour. I think we're just about at it now. I want to wrap up though on a final uh, thought, which is uh, one of the things that 
you know, I'll put my cards on the table. I'm not, I'm none, none too much a lover of woke for this sharp elbows, anti-science, uh, you know, uh, warfare culture, secret code, uh, cancel culture, all this stuff. But, and this is the big but we all have to keep in mind, at least the nominal original goals of this were good, right? We do want a society where uh, race doesn't matter, though the wokes of now won't let you say colorblind anymore. I, I love this, assholes, right? Uh, so they have taken what was good, you know, the Martin Luther King style civil rights movement, where, you know, he and his uh, people uh, demanded the dignity of being thought of as full humans, right? This is good. Uh, you know, I, I feel the same way about homosexual rights. I am glad that we've reached a point where homosexual marriage is legal, though I'll probably get in trouble for saying homosexual. That's probably not allowed anymore. Uh, so the thing that's so annoying about wokeness is that the original underlying motivations were good, but it, through this uh, self-organizing memet, uh, meme space entity. It's developed all these other attributes, which have nothing to do with the core mission, but rather make it a more effective uh, memetic replicator. Well, I think that you need to go back and, and kind of look at what we talked about earlier to understand how and why. I mean, it's not like any the other religions started with you know all of those uh, bad products either. They all started good as well. And then they evolved over time. And the reason why they evolved, we might think, I postulate anyway, is that adopting those bad qualities helped them spread faster. That was exactly my point. Yeah, that they uh, that, that they get those things because they help spread faster. You have sharp elbows, right. arguments about words, help uh, get get eyeballs, help you spread. And, and even though it may undermine your core values, you know, like the Catholic Church, uh, you know, circa 1500, uh, Jesus Christ would have been fucking appalled if he'd come back and seen that shit, Joe, right? So so the, the thing to keep an eye on is that if these sort of uh, self-organizing pseudo-religions and whatnot become the norm in the 21st century, they're evolving more quickly. And they're evolving more quickly because there's a much greater information exchange rate in the internet that allows them to evolve more quickly. So you end up with updates that come out a lot faster. And so whatever evolves to combat woke might end up in the same rub and whatever comes after that might end up in the same rub too. And these, as the, the information exchange happens more quickly, the evolution of these things is going to happen more quickly. And this isn't going to be the only one where you see this crop up. You're going to see it crop up in the next one and the next one and the next one. And that's something that's alarming. Alarming or just is what it is, right? We'll see. Uh, anyway, I think we're going to wrap it here. I want to thank uh, BJ Campbell. You can find him at Hand Waving Freak Outery uh, on Medium currently and on Substack uh, soon. Uh, BJ, thanks a lot for a very interesting and I hope uh, a conversation that people will talk about a little bit. Thanks for having me on. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.